Welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast, brought to you by the Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory at the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. It is our goal to advance the understanding of honeybees and beekeeping, grow the beekeeping community, and improve the health of honeybees everywhere. In this podcast, you'll hear research updates, beekeeping management practices discussed, and advice on beekeeping from our resident experts, beekeepers, scientists, and other program guests. Join us for today's program, and thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Two Bees in a Podcast. Today, we are joined by Dr. Jason Graham, who's a program director and STEM educator and entomologist at the Planet Bee Foundation, which is headquartered in San Francisco, California, as well as has a footprint in Pennsylvania. So he'll be talking about the Planet B Foundation, which is a nonprofit. So this gives us an opportunity to talk about the role of nonprofits in beekeeping and honeybee and native bee education. And we have the special link with Dr. Graham because Jason is actually a former master's and PhD student here at the University of Florida. I've had the privilege of working with and knowing Jason for a very long time. So I'm excited about being able to share about his research and extension experiences and activities. So Jason, welcome to the Two Bees in a Podcast. Thank you, Jamie. It's my my great pleasure to be here. I'm excited to talk to you about what I've been up to since UF. <laughs> well, Jason, <laughs> I know you, right? I know you well, but our listeners may not know you. So the first question that we always ask first-time guests is if you'll tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got working into honeybees or working with native bees as well. How did you find yourself in the bee world? Great. Thank you so much for that question, Jamie. Um, so I uh, was... I kind of have a checkered past with education. Um, I, you know, through middle school and high school, I wasn't really interested in science or, or math or, you know, writing or school or anything at that point. My hobby was getting into trouble. Um, and so I, I pursued that hobby, uh, you know, to this may of my parents. <laughs> um, and eventually I dropped out of high school, uh, took about 10 years off. And it wasn't until um, I was living near Newark, Delaware, and I was thinking, maybe I'll go back to school. Um, I, I took a few classes just for the fun of it um, and to see, you know, kind of challenge myself, see if I could do school again um, and did pretty well. And I took one class in particular that was a lot of fun. Uh, it was uh, in, insects and society. And so it was kind of the intro to entomology for non-entomology majors. And I, I really enjoyed the course. I learned a lot. Um, I was kind of coming up with more questions um, as I was getting answers through that class. And after that, I took a beekeeping class with Dewey Karen. Um, and I, during that class, I, you know, we went out, we opened up a hive. I was able to, there was a lab portion of the, the class that I was, you know, able to keep a hive going throughout the semester. And, you know, at that point, I was like, this is my new hobby, you know, no more trouble for me. I'm interested in bees. And uh, I, I, I went along with that at University of Delaware. I wasn't expecting to go on and get my master's and PhD. Um, I thought I would just end with my, you know, get my bachelor's and, and be done with school and go back into the workforce. Um, Dewey Karen suggested I check in with, with you in Florida uh, as you were getting ready to start a lab. And I was thinking about maybe going for my master's and PhD. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of how I got into bees. I love Dewey Karen. He is so awesome. He's just the coolest person ever. Oh yeah. Yeah. He came in, you know, with a ref shirt, shirt on one time and did the waggle dance in front of a whole classroom full of college <laughs> students and <laughs> had the antenna on and everything. Um, That's was so great. funny. Jamie, I was going to say you're kind of cool too, but Dewey's pretty uh, cool. It's too late. You said I've never put on a shirt and done a waggle dance. Actually, I put on shirts every day, but I just didn't put on a shirt with the purpose of doing a waggle dance. <laughs> right. Right. Oh my goodness. So as you're telling me the story, it's really funny, you know, just to think about Jamie in the early days of starting his lab. And so I know that at the time, Jamie and, and Jason, both of you worked with honeybees and native bees, right? And you were like the honeybee and native bee lab. And so Jason, can you tell us just a little bit about some of the research that you did at the University of Florida? Sure, I'd be happy to. So when I got there and was getting ready to do my master's, I was really interested in kind of the diversity of bees. Um, I was learning that there's 
you know, 4,000 different species of bees in North America, and each one has this interesting story, um, the different life histories and strategies. Uh, and, you know, I really wanted to dive into that for my research, um, but I'm here in the U University of Florida Honeybee Research and Extension Lab, so I felt, you know, part of it, you know, I wanted to also work with honeybees and, and learn as much as I could about them as well. Um, but yeah, for my my research, um, I was going out and we were uh, we were interested in the small hive beetle and if it were uh, building up in native bee colonies like bumblebees and then potentially being a source where they would move into honeybee colonies as well. Um, so did some research along those lines, did some choice tests to see what small hive beetles were attracted to, um, how they were, you know, invading honeybee colonies and potentially bumblebee colonies as well. Um, we looked at the yeast that uh, small hive beetles carry around with them and, you know, found that it changes the yeast uh, comp composition in honeybee colonies. Um, but then also we're seeing that same changes in bumblebee colonies as well. Um, so yeah, that, that was my work with the masters. Um, worked with Cotamaya omeri, which is that yeast uh, that, that showed up in colonies that had small hive beetles with them. We never found small hive beetles in bumblebee colonies, but had read that, you know, they were successful in bumblebee colonies in the lab. So that was something I wanted to pursue. I was able to work with the USDA labs. And one time, you know, we had a, a lab where I was dissecting a bumblebee colony inside the lab. And I had a, a poster up on the door, you know, please don't enter, we'll have bumblebees. And I had a suit on and those bumblebees, they can climb into the bee suit and sting you multiple times. So I remember one time in particular getting stung like 30 or 40 times, probably by the same Jeez. bumblebee that was just kind of <laughs> running around in my bee suit. Uh, let me know who is boss. And you're a better <laughs> man for it, Jason. I am. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So that was my, my research for my master's. And then for my PhD, um, went on to look at solitary bees. So I, I saw, you know, a lot of these mason bee houses or bee hotels, things like that coming um, into the mainstream, I guess. Uh, and so I wanted to see, was it better to have these, you know, set out low or high? Um, what types of materials are best for these? And how could these be used for research? Um, so developed a citizen science program there at uh, University of Florida. Um, and we, you know, encouraged people to set up native bee nest sites in their backyards and report back what their results were. Um, it, it turned out to be a, a tremendous educational opportunity, I think, you know, just getting people to understand that there are more than just the honeybee. And, you know, these native bees are, in many cases, they're not defensive of their nest. So they're uh, safe for, you know, using around uh, classrooms and, and the general public without having to worry about stings. So I uh, worked with uh, the the solitary bees and, and we found out that a lot of solitary wasps use these nests as well and, and we're kind of like digging into that. Um, we looked at the pathogen loads. So I collected native bees and native wasps to see if they were carrying any honeybee pathogens. Um, and yeah, I'm trying to think if there, there was so many aspects to the PhD. I'm just trying to remember all of them here. And I feel a little on the pressure with my advisor on the other. <laughs> I was listening to you talk. I was like, all, all I can remember is just lots and lots of projects and lots right. and lots of work. So you were out in the field all the time doing work with, with native bees and in your in nesting habitat and all that stuff as a PhD student and it. And we're still getting publications out of those huge data sets that you have. So it's actually a really good time, Jason. I really enjoyed that. And it's neat. Because that leads directly to my next question, which is after leaving UF, you you decided to continue to pursue research with bees, but you did that at the University of Hawaii, where you moved to Hawaii to study the endangered yellow-faced bee. Could you tell us a little bit about that process, where you ended up in Hawaii and what you were doing and how you ended up working with the yellow-faced bee? Sure, yeah. So, um, you know, the whole time I'm working on my master's, my PhD, and my my parents are you know they they love that I found something that I love to do but they're a little bit nervous you know like what are you gonna do you know you get you're getting bees in college <laughs> what are you gonna do after college um, you know and make a career out of this and so I'm a little bit stressed out you know looking and what's available and you know what kind of opportunities are gonna be there for when I get you know when I graduate um, and I was a uh, I had someone send me an email saying that they were thinking about 
um, you know, going for this grant that would support someone to do research with an endangered bee in Hawaii, and would I be interested? And this is maybe a month or two before I graduated, so I'm also working on defending and, you know, all the stuff that goes along with a PhD. <clears throat> um, but I was very interested in it. Uh, and I was, you know, moving to Hawaii uh, was going to be a big jump for me. Um, but it seemed like the perfect opportunity. So I, I moved to Hawaii and accepted the job. And I was actually, you know, starting that position um, as I would have walked across the stage at, at University of Florida. So I missed my, my graduation, but uh, I was there in spirit. Um, and I was able to you know, land in Hawaii. I worked with the uh, with University of Hawaii. Um, so I had a position at University of Hawaii, um, where I was a, a junior researcher, and I was going to be the lead researcher for the endangered yellow-faced bee work. Um, it wasn't endangered yet; it was still just the Hawaiian yellow-faced bees. Um, but they had been pushing uh, legislation through um, for quite some time um, with the Xerxes Society and, and several other great people had done some some amazing work to try to just get it to that point where they needed a bit more data to be able to consider it an endangered yellow, you know, an endangered bee. Um, so some of the research that I was doing was kind of feeding into that data so that it was able to become, you know, uh, protected under the um, Endangered Species Act. So uh, it, was, it was a great opportunity. I worked with, uh, at first it was Department of Defense um, funding because they had found the yellow face bee on military land. And so they were, you know, thinking about ways to uh, mitigate that. Uh, I, so I worked a bit um, going on to bases and looking at populations there on the island. Um, and then I was uh, funded by U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and Department of Land and Natural Resources. Um, we ended up, you know, finding these little populations of endangered bees. And I spent a lot of time um, in my office on the beach of Hawaii looking at these flowers and, you know, trying to see if I could find bees on them. And um, I set up some of those native bee nest sites that I was working on for my PhD. I set those up, you know, similar um, setups on on the beach and just would check them every day and uh, observe the bee in its natural habitat and try to figure out what challenges it was facing there in the landscape. Sounds like yeah. a really difficult job, doesn't it, Amy? I know, I know. <laughs> I was just about to say that. <laughs> It was you know, beautiful. It, yeah. My, my dad came out to visit and I, I put him to work. I was like, you're going to carry the backpack and the water bottle and I'm going to carry all this gear and we're going to go out and look at bees. And, and so it was great to have him out and be able to share my new position with them. And um, yeah, great opportunity. That's very cool. You know, so Jamie and I have been interviewing beekeepers and talking about, you know, ways to generate a revenue or just make a living with bees, right? And I think sometimes people forget the research, academia, nonprofit world. And it's so fun, you know, from the education perspective, like you got paid to go out and like look for bees on flowers, which is like so totally cool. And so it's been really fun to hear kind of your experience of the transitions of, you know, going from grad school to working, moving to Hawaii and everything else. And so since then you've moved to California, that's, is that correct? That is correct. Yes. Yeah. So uh, my wife's in tech and so she wanted to be in the Bay Area. And so um, she, you know, we moved and and I was kicking and screaming all the way from Hawaii <laughs> to California, but I love it here now too. Um, and I uh, started out here, there wasn't a whole lot of bee jobs. I was writing letters to all different universities and, and things like that, trying to figure out, you know, what I was going to do next now that I was in California. Um, I knew there were some great programs here and there's a, you know, a lot of good work around bees happening here, um, but I was a bit far away from you know, Riverside or Davis. And um, so I was, I was kind of looking at what nonprofits were in the area and I stumbled across Planet Bee Foundation, um, which is a great organization, great group of people. Um, it was started by a, a husband and wife, um, the beekeeping team that had kids in school and they were doing a lot of work, you know, they'd, they'd often as beekeepers do be requested to come into, you know, as the school groups and talk about bees. So they kind of pivoted from being a honey company to being an education company um, where they were, you know, it's a nonprofit. They would go into schools and share what they knew about bees. Um, and so I started out kind of, they were, they had already been doing this for seven or eight years um, before I kind of um, arrived in California. And so they had already built up some good clients there in California, and I was working as a volunteer with them 
um, to help manage some of their hives. One of their very first clients was Google. Um, so start small, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> so they had hives at Google. They have a, a blue team, a red team, a yellow team, and a green team. And each of those teams manages a hive and they compete to see, you know, who can get the, the strongest hive, who can get the most honey. Um, and then at the same time, they're kind of working together um, to learn alongside each other about bees and beekeeping. Um, so I was able to work with them and, and some of our other clients here in California and really loved it as a volunteer for about four years before I was uh, that they were able to get funding and brought me on as a full-time employee. That's awesome. So does Planet Bee Foundation, did that, I know you were just talking about honeybees, but does it just focus on honeybees or do you also work with native, um, native bees as well? Um, they, we also work with native bees as well, but it wasn't always that way. It had started out as, you know, primarily honeybees. Um, they had done a little bit of uh, education around native bees as well. And then kind of as I joined the team, um, we've diversified much more into native bees. So, you know, now it's almost a 50-50 split. Amy, I think the question you asked Jason just a minute ago is perfect, Jason. I want to kind of reemphasize it and kind of turn this into a little a little question about extension and that said you know a lot of people who have a passion for bees they think to themselves well i've got to go be a beekeeper this is what i want to do but you know you you are illustrating that there's lots of different types of jobs and we're talking to you here kind of from the nonprofit perspective where the goal of this nonprofit is just to educate people about bees and i think it's really neat that that you took your interests and said, you know, maybe I'm not going to be a full-time beekeeper, but instead I'm going to be a full-time bee educator. And you found a nonprofit that supports that vision. And just like you said, I mean, if their clients are Google et al., then you they jump right in and you and you have a great opportunity to make a really big impact beyond maybe the the small area where you live. And so I want to I want to blow up this conversation a little bit and talk about outreach activities that are offered by the Planet B Foundation. You had mentioned that you that the owners, the the CEO, the founders maybe is a better word, they were going and speaking in classrooms. Do you continue those activities? What what are there other places beyond Google where you guys manage hives? Could you tell us just holistically about your approach at outreach and extension at the Planet B Foundation? Sure. Yeah. So um, we we had do have hives many other places in the Bay Area. Um, we have some hives at schools. We have uh, a school, East Bay German International School, um, and that's uh, an elementary school, kindergarten. I, you know, I believe they do middle school and high school, but we mostly work with their K to fifth. Um, we have three hives there, and we go um, several times a year. We do uh, some education there around those hives, um, and we, you know, have done honey harvests at schools. Um, we have another, uh, another middle school and high school that we have hives at where the, the kids were able to come out and do a hive dive. We put bee suits on all the kids. They, they get it to go into the hives. Um, and then we, in their school cafeteria, we brought a honey extractor and they extracted honey and bottled it up and took it home to share with their families. Um, we have hives at Stanford University. We're getting ready to put hives in at Genentech, uh, which is a, a um, pharmaceutical company here in the Bay Area. Um, Cisco, we have hives not on their property, but on the Guadalupe uh, River Park Conservancy. So sometimes we partner a community group up, group up with a corporation. And all these funds that the corporations pay for us to main, manage and maintain those hives and do these workshops uh, allows us to go into schools and um, help out nonprofits in the community at uh, no cost to them. Uh, so all the cost is kind of be sh being shouldered by these, you know, large corporations that want to do um, good work in, you know, in the environment. And this gives them an opportunity to do that, you know, share bees and beekeeping with their employees um, and, and get into conservation of bees and things like that. But then also being supportive of their local communities for education and, and community outreach. And we've done things such as stewardship kits where, these corporations will buy stewardship kits that we'll send into schools. Some of them are um, building native bee nest sites. So they get all the equipment to build a native bee nest site in the school and we'll hop on a Zoom call and, and do that with them. Uh, sometimes they'll buy seed ball equipment. So we'll send out packs of clay and, and uh, soil and seeds and the kids turn that into kind of these little uh, seed M&Ms where it's clay on the outside and soil and seeds in the inside and they can use those and throw them into gardens nearby. Um, we 
also do virtual honey tastings. Um, so I've done, that, you know, I've done that with Epic Games and, and a few other tech companies in the area where I guess since COVID, um, you know, a lot of these companies, the employees are working from home. So this offers a good opportunity for them to still get together and, and, um, and have kind of that, that fellowship, uh, you know, online uh, where they're all tasting the same honey and having kind of that similar experience. Uh, we drop ship it to them. Uh, and then I go through a, a whole presentation on a Zoom call about how, you know, the honey is made and processed and, um, and talk about the seasonality of, and the different uh, varieties of honey. And um, yeah, it's, it's a fun time. <laughs> Oh my goodness. My brain. I'm like, I have so many ideas and just, I have so many thoughts and what a great idea, you know, to do like virtual honey tastings. And I know like some programs would do that during COVID, right? Cause they didn't really have a choice and they had to do something like that, but it seems like you all were really on top of your game. So that's, that's pretty cool to hear. Thank you. Yeah. We are kind of getting more into hybrid because it's uh, you know, it's time consuming to go into a classroom. We need to uh, go and get all the, the, the tabling things, the educational tools and things like that, that we're going to bring. Sometimes we'll bring an observation hive into a school and, and we love to do that in person. Um, but sometimes, you know, that could take half a day to visit one school. Whereas, you know, going virtual, we can, you know, reach five or six schools in the same amount of time in these little 45 minute lessons and things like that, right from the computer. So we're kind of trying to balance that out now and, offer more virtual where we can um, and and still, you know, maintain those local uh, in-person events as we can as well. Yeah. So I actually had another question about just the logistics, the logistics of partnering and collaboration, you know, with some of these bigger corporations. So can you elaborate just a little bit? I mean, how would one just say, hey, we're going to collaborate with Google, right? So what does that look like as far as um, logistics go and program planning? Yeah. So it, it some a lot of the times it's it's been these companies reaching out to us and even in the case of Google um, they were looking for you know something uh, to do with beekeeping that uh, they were interested in having a workshop or a training about around beekeeping and and so they went on and looked for you know Planet B they used Google <laughs> and found you know an organization that does stuff with bees that was local to them and you know brought Planet B in for that first you know lesson. Uh, and since it's grown into this this bigger relationship um, where, you know, we were just recently invited to do a leadership lessons from the Beehive for some of Google's uh, exec circle. So it, it's been, you know, fantastic. They've been, you know, wonderful partners. They've, they donated 20 or yeah, 25 suits, you know, like these are the I would have, a long time ago, I would have said the Cadillac of bee suits. These are like the Teslas of bee suits here in the Bay Area. They're, you know, those easy breeze suits that um, you don't, you don't start sweating in those right away when you put them on. Uh, they have the the double layers or, or triple layer mesh thing. And um, so we're, they've been donating those. And so we're able to use those with our schools and, and local uh, community organization, hive dives and things as well. So it's been really fantastic. Um, and logistically, so now we have, you know, we may have someone contact us, like for instance, Funko reached out recently and they're interested in putting hives on one of their, uh, their locations. So if you're not familiar, Funko is the one with the bottle bobbleheads. They have a bobblehead for just about every character from Disney to Nintendo to, you know, all the, all these different little character bobbleheads. And that's do they do niche. personalized bobbleheads? Because I, I have they do. Christmas gift ideas for 2023. <laughs> well, I was uh, hoping oh. for the MOU for us to put the bees on, on their roof. Maybe they can make a, a little beekeeper bobblehead. So we'll see if that happens. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Yeah. But they, they reached out and asked if, you know, what the logistics would be there in Washington. So not one of the States where we're presently in, but the plan is we, you know, go and we set things up for them. We get the hive started. We connect with a local beekeeper there in Washington that can help to manage and maintain those hives for us in the interim. And I'll be out once a quarter just to make sure everything is going well there. Um, so yeah, logistically, it's almost, uh, you know, we have uh, so many organizations reaching out and supporting us that it's, it, it can be um, mind blowing and uh, yeah, constant, constant source of work, <laughs> which is great. That's keeping me busy. 
Jason, I think it's really funny that you said Google Googled you guys to figure out um, all about you and 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 end up using you um, for their educational and outreach needs. So beyond that, how are some other ways that companies have found the Planet B Foundation? Great, thanks. Yeah, we also do tabling events where we'll you know go to local events in in California. Sometimes we're at the Oakland Zoo. Sometimes we're at the Cal Academy of Sciences or um, these different events where. They'll have multiple partners from the community come and set up a table. And there we're basically interacting with the public and we're making seed balls or we're showing an observation hive or, you know, showing how to make a native bee nest site. And while we're there, you know, we're, we're talking to those um, community members and some of them have organizations or, you know, uh, businesses where they're interested in bringing in Planet Bee Foundation or sometimes we'll meet with up with a school teacher who's looking for resources and we'll, we'll point them to some of the printable worksheets that we have online, or we'll have, uh, we have the asynchronous lessons that we offer or the synchronous live lessons that we offer um, to schools. And so um, th those tabling or community events have been a great way to meet more uh, clients and, and more um, people in the community that we can help out. Well, I think all the work that you all are doing is just, it's amazing. And it's, you know, it's a good thing to stay busy, right? And so there are just so many different projects that you're working on and, and they all just sound really, really fun. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like I found my perfect, perfect fit. Um, this is a, a great organization to work for. I can, you know, continue to explore my passion, which is bees and diversity and, and teaching um, all wrapped up into one position. So it's, it's fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. So what other future plans do you all have for the Planet B Foundation? Great. Well, yeah, we have uh, plans to kind of continue to expand. So right now we are uh, and we started out in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, we recently received some funding. So about uh, three to three or four years ago, we got funding with a giant company in Pennsylvania. And so that's led us to expand in Pennsylvania. Um, they're supporting us to go into schools uh, for free in, in many counties in Pennsylvania and some neighboring states. Um, and, you know, I, I'm just getting back from a trip to the Pennsylvania Farm Show, um, which is kind of the biggest agricultural show on the East Coast, uh, kind of a big conference. And, and they had you know, 4-H kids there brushing goats and feeding cows and so on. And, and I had a table up there where we were talking about bees as well. Did a couple talks there at the at the farm show. Um, we are, our, our founder, Deborah Tomaszewski and, and her husband are moving to DC um, very soon. And so we'll have a footprint in DC as well. And they're interested in getting Planet B, you know, in the area around the Smithsonian and, you know, working there with some of the, um, folks in DC are trying to make, you know, change uh, with legislature um, on on bees and, and native bees and, and conservation things along those lines. So some of our future plans are to just continue to grow and serve the, you know, the biggest communities that we can. Uh, we would like, we're, we're trying to develop some certificate programs uh, where beekeepers can become planet bee educators and then you know, go into schools and things like that with our, you know, with our training and all of our resources and support um, to be able to develop programs in schools locally for them. Uh, one of the bottlenecks we found is, you know, we only have five educators, uh, you know, that are available to go into schools. So sometimes we'll have more demand than we have availability for. So we're hoping to train beekeepers similar to the master beekeeper program, um, but it's kind of a shorter, you know, one year type program where we have webinars every month. Uh, these would be live web webinars um, where folks could ask questions and uh, about some of these topics like classroom management, you know, so sometimes a beekeeper may want to go into a school, but may be hesitant because they're not sure, you know, what if the kids ask a question that I'm comfortable, uncomfortable with, or what if they're, you know, being rowdy while I'm trying to talk or things like that. We're giving the beekeepers some strategies to kind of manage the classroom and, and to um, work well with the schools as far as developing MOUs to put hives on the schools and develop these honey harvest programs kind of all the way through so that they can use this as an extra source of income for themselves um, and then continue to kind of spread good work about um, protecting our pollinators and why they're so important. Uh, we're also working with the Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture um, and the Pennsylvania Department of Education uh, to, to bring more pollinator education into the ag programs in schools um, so that we can come up with some innovations for agriculture. As you both know, honeybees are depended on for most of our agriculture. Uh, so 
looking at some of these other native bees as potential alternative pollinators um, is is has always been kind of near and dear to my heart. I think it's you know something that we should really try to get into so that we don't have all our eggs in one basket. Um, and maybe some of these native pollinators uh, could be used on on commercial crops. So developing that out with students, you know, that are that are looking for these applied science project projects and problems to be able to come up with solutions for um, just feels like a natural fit for me. So um, just continuing to share our bee work and and growing as as much we can um, while continuing to to support locally the best we can with. Uh, the pollinator programs in schools and community groups and with corporations. So with native bees, we are trying to develop a native bees, you know, we have native bee citizen science projects where um, people can use iNaturalist. It's this app where you can take a picture of any living thing and it'll try to identify it for you. Um, and so we're using that, uh, we have a project on that platform for bees. Um, and so if people take pictures of bees on flowers, it'll record that data. Um, and it'll, you know, give us a timestamp and a geolocation, and we're able to say this native bee was found on this flower at this time, and that helps us to give kind of a seasonality. And um, for instance, like at Google or at Stanford, they would be able to use these uh, these projects um, as team building activities and see, you know, who can observe the most bees or uh, who can build the most native bee nest sites, which nest sites are most successful and and things along those lines. So I am carrying through with that citizen science that I started at UF. Um, I did some of that in Hawaii as well with the Bishop Museum. We got some funds from Disney Conservation uh, Foundation, which supported that. And uh, so now this is kind of my third citizen science project um, and we're, we're, we're uh, excited to roll that out very soon as well. So Jason, this is all a really fascinating story. I think it's a great illustration of how one can have an interest in bees, do a lot of um, academic work in bees, and then find their love, in this case, particularly in education and outreach and extension. You know, we're proud of what you've done. It's exciting to see your work at the Planet Bee uh, Foundation and what they're doing to spread the news about pollinators in general, but honeybees and native bees specifically. So thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Two Bees in a Podcast and sharing about your experiences. Thank you, Jamie and Amy. It's been an amazing opportunity to be here and talking with you. So thanks so much for all the great work you all do. Jamie, I sound like a broken record because I'm just like every time we talk to a beekeeper or someone who's in the industry or someone working with any bee related thing, you know, it's just it's so fascinating because there are just so many different there's so many different people, so many different opportunities. And it's just really fun to talk to people about their jobs. You know, I, I I was thinking about one of the things Jason was saying while you were making that statement. And it's this idea that, you know, my parents were asking me, what am I going to do with that degree? And a lot of people think yeah. that, you know, I've got to interest in bees. I've kept some bees. So I must, I guess, beekeeping is the thing that I have to do, right? Commercial or sideline or need to make money that way. But there's lots of other ways. And Jason just illustrates another example of, of how one can pursue their love with bees in a very unique way. And even, even if you're a beekeeper out there and don't want to do full-time kind of nonprofit work, there's still an opportunity to do part-time nonprofit work. And I think Jason, the Planet Bee Foundation, they really illustrate that well. So it's exciting to talk to him and hear about yet again, another way that people can dive straight into their bee passion. Yeah. And something else that he had kind of mentioned was that, you know, he had gone through academia, he worked for academia, and then he actually started volunteering with them. Right. And so I feel like there's so many, of course, there's so many uh, volunteer opportunities out there, but just to get involved with kind of like your local community. Um, and especially if you're able to help just the local, wherever you are. Yeah, I like that. And I like the fact that even the organization they're working with is expanding beyond local, but they you know, what's interesting is that they started in schools. I really like that idea. I know that, you know, our program focuses heavily on adult beekeeper education because those those are the individuals keeping bees now who have the issues that we need to help them with. But listen, I tell you, the today's young generation is just being inundated with messaging about honeybees beekeeping through programs like this through nonprofits and even programs like ours. And I think it's going to create a, a wave of, of well-informed 
good intentioned individuals who are going to have honeybees and pollinators right at the forefront of what they think about when they think about environmental stewardship. And that's really exciting to see. It's everybody's favorite game show, Stomp the Chomp. Welcome back to the question and answer time. Jamie, we've got two questions specifically about ants, and then we have one question about bees. Okay. Well, good. <laughs> so I'm not the, an entomologist. I, oh, <laughs> oh my gosh. I think you've you know, said I, that in a past so episode, too. by yeah. the way. That's an it old right joke. There. It was right there. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. So the first question is, what is your best recommendation for ants, specifically carpenter ants? And I will say, fine, it is about ants, but what's your best recommendation for ants that are a problem in a honeybee hive? Yeah, so this is a really good uh, question, and fortunately, I, I have a good answer, but it's not an answer, Amy, that originates with me. It's an answer that originates with Dr. Bill Kern. So for the benefit of all the listeners here, here in our Department of Entomology and Nematology at University of Florida, we've got the benefit of having a faculty member named Dr. Uh, Bill Kern. He's down at one of our research centers in Fort Lauderdale, and he actually wrote a document called Ant Control in the Apiary. It's one of our University of Florida EDIS documents. We need to make sure and link to this document in the show notes, because as you've noted, Amy, the first two questions are about ants. And this document really, really, really addresses those questions well. And for our listeners outside of Florida and from around the world, this document's also relevant to you. Everything that Dr. Kern put into this document is really relative to anyone struggling with ants and their bee colonies around the world. All right. So so Amy, to answer the question, the way that Bill teaches about ants in the apiary is he says that ants are broadly split into two kind of big categories. That would be the bee and brood eaters and the honey and nectar stealers. In other words, when ants are going to colonies or hives, they're going usually after one of two things. Either they're there to eat the bees or the brood, or they're there to eat the honey and the nectar. And the reason this is important is because you need to know what they're going after in the first place in order to treat for them later on. So for example, this questioner asked about carpenter ants. Now I'm going to take the questioner at face value. I'm, I'm not really good with my ant species. I'm a honeybee guy. But you know, assuming that the identity was correct, if it truly is a type of carpenter ant, then carpenter ants can be brood and bee eaters. So if you were going to try to control carpenter ants, you would go kind of down one road than if you were going to say, control the Argentine ant, which is a honey and nectar stealer. And so the reason I point this out is if it's truly a carpenter ant, they are there probably for bees and brood. They're wanting to eat the physical bees themselves. And Bill lists in this document how one would bait to control these types of ants. So baits can come in multiple different styles. There's baits that are kind of sugar attractant baits, which would attack, attract the sugar feeding ants. And then there's ant, there are ant baits that are more kind of protein derived to go after those ants that are eating the bees and brood. And so if you look at this document that I referred you to, you can scroll down to the section on what type of bait would work best for you. I always hesitate, Amy, to mention specific trade names because that can vary around the world and labels can change. But if you look in that document that we'll link in the show notes, it talks within the baits about how to bait either these kind of protein feeding ants, the ones that are going after bees or brood, or the sugar feeding ants, the ones that are going after honey or nectar. I will say ants can be using honeybee colonies for a third reason, and that is for shelter. In my own apiary, for example, before I've had ants nesting up under the lid of the hive and things like that. And so you might have to take a, a slightly different strategy. But baits, especially toxic baits, are really good ways to knock out the ants that are visiting those colonies. And I'll mention, too, probably most beekeepers I know, rather than using toxic baits around their hive, which bees might be attracted to themselves, they go for ant exclusion, which is another strategy one can use for keeping ants out of your hives in the first place. Yeah, Jamie, I don't know if you remember, but we actually had Dr. Bill Kern on one of our like 
OG original podcast episodes. Do you remember <laughs> having him? That was when Actually, we were like, that was pre-COVID. Yeah, I do. In fact, when I was answering this question and, and I'm looking at his Edith publication while I'm answering the question, I was sitting here going, you know, Bill talked about ants in the apiary as one of our first episodes of our first season. So you guys could go back and listen to that one. There'd be a ton of information in that, in that podcast episode, no doubt. Yeah, absolutely. So so you just mentioned exclusion. And so that actually takes me to my second question for today. And the questioner has asked, is it effective to place aluminum cookie sheet pans coated with Vaseline placed upside down over concrete blocks to prevent ants from coming into the hives? Have you heard of this before? And do you know if it is effective? So Amy, I've heard of things like this, and I will tell you that this is just a, a classic exclusion device. So again, I'm going to reference Dr. Kern's document through this. He devotes about a third of the document to identifying the ant. Like I said early on, knowing which of the two groups of ants you have is going to dictate you know, your control strategy. The second third of the document is all about baits. Are you attracting them to a protonaceous bait? Are you, bait, or are you attracting them to a sugar bait? And then which toxin are you using? How do you keep it away from the bees? And the third part, Amy, of his document is exclusion. And if you scroll down in that ES document about exclusion, you'll see ant, sorry, you'll see hive stands of all types of configuration. Some of them are hives sitting on a little table platform that has a single leg, and that leg may be coated with um, a particular product that's really sticky to ants, or coated with Vaseline, like the questioner is asking, or maybe the legs of the hive stand are sitting in a bucket of soapy water so that the ants can't get across that. So all of these exclusion methods can be very effective, in which case you wouldn't even have to treat ants at all. You just exclude them from your hive. And rather than going through all the strategies, I'll just point out that this document has a lot of different um, um, ideas for that. And the questioner is asking specifically about a Vaseline-coated cookie sheet. For, if, for those of you out there in the world who don't use that terminology, cookie sheet, it's basically a baking pan on which cookies are often cooked. It's usually a thin piece of uh, metal. And the questioner is saying, hey, look, if I just coat one side of that with Vaseline and put Vaseline face down, underneath the hive stand, maybe the ants can't go around it. And that absolutely could work. It's definitely one exclusion strategy, but just know with exclusion, if you have, if, if colonies are located under a tree or if there's high grass or shrubbery around the hive and, and the grass or the shrubbery or the tree limb is touching the hive, then ants can bypass your exclusion devices and get into the hive. So if you're going to use the exclusion strategy, the only way up into the hive would have to be past your exclusion device, which presumably ants wouldn't be able to do. So yes, exclusion is certainly one of those things you could look at. It's probably most popular with hobbyist beekeepers. Commercial beekeepers, I know if you have a really bad ant problem with something like fire ants or something like that, they're, they're often labeled products one can use that might be granular in nature or liquid in nature that you can use to kill the ants. But any chemical that you put around colonies, you're going to have to be mindful of protecting bees from it. And you do that by following the label. So treatment for ants as well as exclusion for ants, both good options. And have a look at this document because I really feel like it'll answer your questions in, in even greater detail. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I was, I took part in a program. I was in the Dominican Republic in February and we did a lot of site visits. And I just remember they, they basically have like, you know, those styrofoam kind of poster board type things. They would put that on top of their lids. And every time I'd go in and and pull and pry that lid off, there would be ants everywhere. And, you know, like you mentioned, you're not an entomologist and I'm not either. I don't love ants. And so I totally understand from a beekeeper's perspective of just wanting to get rid of the ants. Hey, Amy, in the tropics, ants can be a huge problem for bees because just like what yeah. you, know, you know, nearly every managed hive you open, there'll be an ant crawling around it or in it. When, you know, I grew up in Georgia and in Georgia, we had a really big fire ant problem so bad that they would sit at the base of colonies. And if, if a bee missed the landing board, the fire ants would just disable it nearly instantly. So to make a long story short, they can be really bad. And here in Florida, you know, specifically, they can be quite bad. And listeners around the world, if you live in a warm climate where ants are common, then exclusion devices or baits are really your best options. And if you don't have easy access to chemical control, then exclusion is basically your option. So this EDIS document gives some really good ideas on how best to handle that. All right. So for my third question, this has nothing to do with ants, 
foot. The questioner is asking if there's new research on how to install a package of bees. And I thought that question was kind of interesting because I, I don't think I've heard anything, but I would love to hear your thoughts, Jamie, on if there's new research on how to install a package of bees. Amy, you're spot on. It's just kind of one of those things that's just so commonly understood in the industry that I'm not aware of any new insider strategy for installing a package B beyond the way that we already do. So maybe I'll elaborate on that a little bit and maybe help the listener if they're asking, if, if they're struggling to do it consistently well. So for our listeners outside the U.S., there's a whole contingency of beekeepers within the U.S. whose job it is to sell beekeepers packages of bees. You just get this screened cage with somewhere in the neighborhood of two to three pounds, usually around three pounds of bees. And, and, and there's literally you buy it that shows up in the mail and you have to go to your post office. You pick up this screen package of bees and in there you've got all those bees and you've got a queen in a cage. And historically, if you look at a lot of the strategies for installing these packages, um, the books, the videos, et cetera, usually tell you to lightly mist with a handheld kind of pump sprayer the bees in that package with a little bit of warm water, a little bit of sugar water. You bounce that package gently on the ground to knock the bees down off the walls of the package or the surface of the package and you spray the bees a little bit. And then you turn the package one way and you miss the bees with sugar water again. And then you turn it another way and miss the bees. The idea is you're getting all the bees a little bit wet with sugar water. And then you take the lid off of that package and you gently shake all of those kind of sticky bees that you've moistened with sugar water or water into an empty hive body. That's that's kind of the historical way that packages are introduced into hives. And this is a really good way to do it if you're installing one package into one hive in your backyard because most of the bees will stay in that one hive. They've got no confusion. It's just where they are. But even at our lab at the University of Florida, when we've installed 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 packages or more, in an apiary at a time, using this kind of spray and dump method can cause a lot of confusion. If you're dumping bees into a hive, you know, the, the bees in those packages have no hive loyalty, they have no queen loyalty, they have no brood loyalty. So I've seen, you know, if you go through say 10 hive bodies and you dump a package into each of those, you come back the next day, oftentimes the hives on the end of that row are super duper strong and the hives in the middle of that row are really weak, which suggests that those bees drifted heavily during the package shaking process. I've seen some of the hives in the middle of the row be completely devoid of bees altogether because they've migrated to the neighboring hives. I've seen um, people who produce packages miss virgin queens and accidentally introduce virgin queens into those packages. So when you're shaking those packages into your hive, You've got these loose virgin queens running around and they might lead a swarm. And then when, when one of the packages swarms, three or four or five of them swarm. So you can get these mega swarms. that basically sucks away all the bees that you just dumped into those hives. So, so I'm not a huge fan of the shaking package method if I'm introducing bees into five or 10 or more or hives. So what I would do in that case is I do the slow release method which I really find quite favorable. And the way you do this is imagine that you've got a hive body with 10 frames. I remove five of those frames and put the other five in that hive body up against one wall of the box. So basically you've created a hive body that's half frames and half empty space. Then I would lightly mist the bees with either sugar water or water, kind of the way I described earlier in that package. Then I would bounce the bees down gently in the package, take off the lid of the package, and then sit that entire package in that empty space in the hive body. And over the next few hours, they will slow release themselves out of that package onto the neighboring frames. And the next day I might come in, remove the now empty package or mostly empty package and replace those five original frames that I removed. And this slow release, has been a really good way to limit the chaos often associated with heavy drifting of newly introduced bees or those errant swarms of newly introduced bees. So anytime I slow release, um, I do it that way. I might even do it in the evenings so the bees don't have a lot of time to 
to drift or to, to swarm and to cause all this chaos. You know, they're working up against nighttime, so that can help. Um, I also might reduce the entrance a little bit to limit the flow of bees out of the nest in that kind of chaotic scene. And just as a final FYI for what it's kind of worth, I personally don't like misting bees and packages with sugar water because the sugar water is sticky and it gets over absolutely everything. I tend to find that the bees respond just as nicely as if you mist them lightly with a little bit warm water. I don't drown the bees. I just kind of mist them lightly. And the whole purpose behind misting them in the first place is so when you open the lid of that package, they don't all just fly out. It, it, it keeps that errant flight behavior from going all over the place. So maybe I answered that question a lot longer than the listener intended, <laughs> but there's no new research, but there are better ways to do it than, than other ways. So hope that yeah. helps. Absolutely. So for our new beekeepers who are about to install their packages, let's summarize, Jamie. So for that slow release, you basically have the box, you've got the lid, and a lot of times they'll have that, uh, you know, canned sugar syrup inside. So you take the lid off, you take the can out. Sometimes they come with queens, right? In a queen cage. Mm -hmm. And you leave the queen in the cage. So I leave the queen in the cage, but I take her out of the package and hang her between two frames, which will give those bees in the package another impetus to move from the package into the neighboring frames. Right. And then you just close it up and check on back on it in a couple of days. I usually come back the next day, take out those packages, and, and there will be a few bees left in the packages. And when that happens, I just sit the empty or the nearly empty packages on the ground outside the hive entrance and they will crawl out or fly out and go to their new hive. But I, I don't like to shake because again, the chaos that that creates can really result in unequal um, co colonies of unequal strength. Let's just put it that way. All right. Okay. So those were the three questions that we had for today. Uh, don't forget to send us a message on our social media page or send us an email, honeybee at ifis.ufl.edu. Thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. For more information and resources on today's episode, check out the Honeybee Research Lab website at ufhoneybee.com. If you have questions you want answered on air, email them to us at honeybee at ifas.ufl.edu or message us on social media at ufhoneybeelab on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. This episode was hosted by Jamie Ellis and Amy Boo. This podcast is produced and edited by Amy Boo and Sarah Sowers. Thanks for listening and see you next week.